Welcome to Emergence Magazine's podcast. I'm Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, executive editor of Emergence Magazine, located on the unceded ancestral lands of the Coast Miwok people of present-day Marin County. Each week, we feature a new interview, narrated essay, or story, exploring the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Machines and computers have transformed how we absorb meaning from our realities, speeding us up far beyond our natural pace of moving through the day. Modern technology dissects time into smaller and smaller units, dispersing it into the consumable, atomized portions that can hardly be felt, let alone truly and deeply experienced. What might happen if we kept time by listening to the primordial metronomes that remain both in our physical bodies and the greater body of the Earth? What if we embodied a kind of time that allowed us to be deeply inward and profoundly attentive to the world around us? Recently, I spoke with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Paul Salapek, who is a decade into a remarkable journey retracing on foot the migration pathway taken by the first humans out of Africa tens of thousands of years ago. Speaking to me from northeastern China, he shares how moving at three miles per hour has deepened his personal relationship to time. As Paul becomes attuned to what he terms sacramental time, the boundaries between the physical and metaphysical begin to blur into an expansive experience of timelessness. Paul, it's it's great to speak with you today. It's, it's good to be here. Uh, where are you talking to me from right now? I'm in uh, the northeastern region of mainland China. I am in a province called Liaoning, uh, about, I don't know, about 700 kilometers uh, north of Beijing. And just one, one caveat, I, I can't really choose my audio environments, as you might imagine. I kind of end up where I can walk at the end of each day. So I found the quietest room I could, I could locate uh, in this small town in a lodge. Um, but you might get a little ambient sound. I'm still hearing a little traffic noise outside. And, and what time is it there right now? It's a little after seven in the morning. And, and how long have you been there and, uh, and where are you heading next? In China, I've been walking for a bit over two years right now, and I'm walking north towards the Heilongjiang, uh, Black Dragon River, or the Russians call it the Amur, uh, the border between China and Russia. And the town that you're, you're calling in from today, how long have you been there? Um, just uh, overnight, because I'm walking every day. So we're talking about maybe, what, 12 hours, something like that. Got in last evening. Wow. So every every night it's somewhere different. Yeah, that's most of the time. I, I do pause the walk on occasion for longer periods, uh, both to rest, but also to do my work, to write. Well, well, well you're 10 years into this um, remarkable journey, retracing the, the migration pathway out of Africa that the first humans took tens of thousands of years ago. And you've been retracing this pathway as our ancestors did walking at three miles an hour at the pace of which you've called a distinctly human tempo, which I, I love the phrase. And, and I imagine you've been asked this question a lot, but I guess I need to ask it as well. 
which is what prompted you to embark on this journey and perhaps more importantly, why did you choose to walk? I had been uh, working for a number of years internationally as a foreign correspondent with the Chicago Tribune based in Africa. And my beat actually was mainly Africa, but global because I got um, sucked into war reporting in uh, Central Asia and the Middle East as well. And after, I don't know, about nine years of doing that continuously, the combination of the implosion of the print media world in the U.S. and also just kind of having reached uh, a point in my life when I thought that um, I was looking for new challenges, new ways to tell stories, uh, ways that might get closer to the bone of meaning at an international level, I came up with this idea of combining science with storytelling and uh, following the footsteps of the first anatomically modern humans, people who look like us, who left Africa anywhere between, you know, 70 to 120,000 years ago and began walking across the planet, dispersing across the continents. And I thought this would be an interesting experiment in uh, slow storytelling or slow journalism, a way of slowing down my methodology and immersing myself in the lives of the people who inhabit the headlines of our day. So it's been kind of a giant, kind of a planet-sized studio to, <laughs> to think about how stories are connected, not just kind of mega stories, say the climate crisis or human conflict, but our individual stories as well. And one way that I've found that does it really well is by slowing myself down and walking from person to person. That's basically the premise of this. It's a listening project uh, where the destination almost always is another person. Hmm. And the destination is also, as far as I understand it, the tip of South America in Patagonia. Um, and uh, that's ultimately where you want to end up. Uh, when you set out, how long did you think it would take you to get there? Yeah, based on a just a rough calculation, I, uh, I think literally on the back of a napkin in a restaurant in Chicago, I thought it might take about seven years uh, if I walk at the average pace uh, that a human adult walks, which is about three miles or five kilometers an hour. Uh, I did kind of thumbnail math, and it came out to be about seven years with a route that spans about 24,000 miles mm. from the Horn of Africa, as you mentioned, to the tip of South America. And why the tip of South America? Because it just happens to be a convenient conceptual finish line for a walk that's hoping to kind of mimic the first human migrations. And uh, scientists tell us that the tip of South America is one corner of the continents where our ancestors ran out of new horizons. Mm. And it's taken you 10 years to get to China. Um, and how long do you think it'll take you to get from where you are now? Um, Emmanuel, yeah, it's very, very difficult to predict, you know, so, so much for the, for the back of the envelope schedule, right? But, you know, who's counting at this stage? The walk has become my life. If geopolitics <clears throat> work out, if, you know, the weather works out, if my knees hold out, um, maybe another three, four years of walking. It depends on a lot of variables. Yeah, it's a very, it's an art, not a science, I've discovered, uh, this, this walking gig. <laughs> well, well I, I followed your journey uh, since you set out and uh, read your dispatches in National Geographic. And, and I, I felt like through your reporting, 
uh, I've been witnessing how the world is changing, but also very much so how your relationship to the world and what you find meaningful is changing. And I'm curious about how moving through the world at that pace you you set out at, at three miles an hour altered the way you absorb meaning from the world around you. That's a really good question. It's one, of course, that I've thought of myself. In in all honesty, it, it really I've got to remind my readers often uh, sort of how this came about and 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 how or how how not I've changed over the years. Keep in mind that I was 50 when I took my first steps out of the Rift Valley of Africa. Mm -hmm. So I had a pretty big chunk of life behind me. I also mm -hmm. remind my readers that I was not kind of a conventional foreign correspondent. I had brilliant, empathetic, wonderful editors who, who gave me lots of time, this magic special ingredient of time to delve into storytelling, to delve into everything from investigations of, of Russian gun runners to uh, following the changing environments in, in the continent of Africa, projects that required months and months of work. So I'd actually been doing this uh, episodically, uh, story specifically, right? Subject matter right. by subject matter. I'd been doing right. slow storytelling. The difference with this project is that now over the last decade, it's been linear. Whereas mm. in the past, I would do a story about following the flow of oil across the world, say to a gas station in suburban Chicago, a project that took seven months. And then later I would jump on to another project that might take a few months looking at overfishing along the coastlines of Africa. Now these big theme ideas, everything from the environment to politics to, to war to culture to, to public health are actually strung together like beads on a string. And mm. I use that simile decidedly because one of the great gifts of the walk, both emotionally and intellectually, is it's given a direction to my work and my life that I didn't have before. Before it was a bit atomized. It was deep and immersive, but it was a mosaic, right? Here mm -hmm. behind me, north of me, south of me, west of me. Here I wake up every day of my life over the last decade knowing more or less literally where I'm headed next. Literally towards sunrise, right? Literally <laughs> towards the east across Eurasia for year after year, right? First coming out of Africa, then through the Middle East, and then across the Silk Roads through Central Asia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And that is a powerful perspective to bring to this thing that I do. And it, and it has affected the way I think I write stories. On the one hand, I'm doing sort of the same that I have been doing my entire writing life. And in that sense, uh, I've used the phrase that launching a walk across the world is not a departure for me, right? I didn't have a midlife crisis and Chuck a sedentary job aside and then go out and walk the earth. <laughs> it's more of an arrival. This idea is kind of the, the synthesis of, of years of practice into a line, a line of progress that happens to follow the footsteps of the ancestors, but a line nonetheless, a line that's attached to deep history, a line that looks to the future, a line that's anchored mm. in the present, very present, right? Um, mm. When you're walking long distances, I can't tell editors, I can't tell family members, I can't tell governments, this is where I'm going to be next Tuesday. I, I simply don't right. know, 
Um, so it puts me very much, anchors my work in the present. That's one change. The other way I think I've changed is it's given me more of a sense of how interconnected life in the world is today. Um, it's always interconnected. We just don't see it because if we're sedentary, we are living rich, um, rewarding lives within the bounds of a, a geographical bubble, right? That may expand or contract depending on how much we move. Whether we do micro-migrations every day called commuting, or whether we move around through bigger radius from where we have a home, say, by walking every day and getting up and putting on a backpack, having a cup of tea or coffee, and then setting out in a direction, the directionality has been really a powerful um, shaping tool, both for giving me in my personal life a sense of, of meaning, a sense of a journey that is unfolding in real time, and I know sort of where I'm headed, more or less. And it also gives the storytelling the sense of one story that I might write this week about the environment is connected to a story that I might write a month down the pike that's connected to climate or resource exploitation or human rights or gender issues or what have you, biology, archaeology. They're all linked um, uh, like, like links on a chain. And, mm. and so that is really quite nice because the walk has become kind of a, a book, if you will, where every story I'm writing is a page, but that page is bound to a spine, right? No matter how radically different the subject matter is, because every day, I don't know what I'm going to be confronting. I don't know what will be the surprise. This project is premised on serendipity. It's premised on chance. It's premised on surprise, mm. the wonder of surprise. But that page is glued to a spine, and that, that spine is a trail that goes from horizon to horizon. Hmm. Well, well, time seems to be a big theme about what you write about, and, and not just because of um, the nature of slowing down to the speed of three miles an hour to walk. And, and I, you know, I was struck in some of your writing where you talked about coming out of, you know, more rural landscapes and, and coming into contact with these really busy cities or the world's, some of the world's busiest trade arteries. And, and you described this experience as debilitating, um, not just because of the accelerated motion of the population density of these places, but because it brought you into contact with what you described as the inhuman fury of modern time. And it made me wonder how your relationship to modern time has shifted over these last 10 years as you've walked. Ironically, I hoped that that walking long distances through, through landscapes, uh, human landscapes, inhabited landscapes, landscapes that are a mosaic of individual stories, would put me into the Pleistocene state of mind, right, that our ancestors had as hunter-gatherers as they moved through their environment uh, and slowed mm. their days down, um, a time that was more connected to nature, anchored in seasons, right? As my life is very much right now. I'm outdoors all the time. <laughs> uh, this is something that puts me more in kind of kinship with, say, farmers or fisher people uh, than with modern urbanites. So time plays a factor in that, in the sense of when I'm in rural landscapes or when I'm in wilderness, 
my heartbeat becomes, or my feet become metronomes that tick off not just distance, but also the passage of time. And, and time, in quotes, slows down to what I would call a human scale. Mm-hmm. Once my trail, my kind of very crooked meandering trail, um, transects big urban areas, and it does, um, time seems to speed up. It's not just that our contrivances today, not just that our technology, um, not just that our information has sped up to the speed of light, right? The speed of electrons, but time itself seems to rush past in a fire hose, a torrent. And so I feel um, out of time. I have Hmm. written about this very peculiar feeling of coming, say, from weeks or even months out of rural landscapes or or natural landscapes uh, or more natural landscapes, shall we say. There's so much of the earth has been altered. There's not much natural that's left uh, that I can see on the last, you know, thousands of kilometers that I've walked. But coming out of a stiller, quieter, um, more nature-metered landscapes um, into a big city, I feel a bit like a ghost. I feel like I could almost lift off the sidewalk. I feel almost transparent. I feel like the city is rushing through me, through my body. I don't know if you've seen films of where they have kind of fast sped up motion around a character. Say if you can imagine a drone shot where there's somebody standing still and there are like just a whir of color and movement around them. That's close to the feeling that I get every time I walk from farmland into a big city. And it's, it's enhanced by the fact that all the motion around me, which includes humans in rapid motion, right? In motorized vehicles, what have you, don't seem to see me because everybody mm. is moving so fast that I feel like I am sort of a phantasm and I could almost walk through the walls of these skyscrapers. It's a very strange, uh, interesting, um, sometimes disturbing feeling. Mm. You've also written about um, becoming attentive to a rhythm that exists outside of um, this kind of time you just described, and you mentioned your heartbeat. Um, But you've also written about uh, realizing that there's a deeper, older geological pulse that's present in the land around you. And you've said that as you walk, you notice a sensation of standing still, and that, in fact, it is the earth itself that is revolving slowly underfoot, the ultimate in clockwork, a giant cog. And, you know, this is, of course, something we all learn, but few of us experience it in the way you've described it. Uh, how has this changed you experiencing this day to day? This sense of, of geologic time that comes with spending long periods out walking is wonderful. You know, on the one hand, I've described walking past modern human infrastructure, the the built environment Mm. of the 21st century, and how when I'm walking in this state of mind, this kind of trance state that's deeply inward, where you're you're like in a waking dream, or you might be having like a a movie of, of imagery going through your mind, but also you're hyper alert right? Because when you're out walking, you, you can't sort of sleepwalk through the world. You, your, your body has to be switched right. on, right? You have to, I don't walk with ear pods. I don't 
listen to music, I can't because I need to hear uh, if, if somebody out in the field hails me, I want to be able to answer that salutation. Um, I need to hear where, which way the wind's blowing. Um, I need to hear if there's a river approaching in the forest. And these kind of sensations of being kind of hyper alert, like a hunter, like our original ancestors who walked, who blazed these trails, but also being inward, does seem to tap into this sense of ancient time, maybe sacramental time, where... Mm. The world is revolving, as, as I mentioned, underfoot like a ball. Um, and it, it, it comes and goes, right? It's not something that I can summon consciously. Um, it, it just comes and goes. I have very distinct memories of when it does appear. There were fields in Turkey um, where my boots were scaring up clouds of grasshoppers, where I've got this distinct impression. Um, I got it walking through the mountains of southwestern China. It comes with this kind of deep sense of equanimity, this sense that, that, mm. you know, um, I'm a transient particle, uh, through time and space. And on the one hand, I'm directing my direction with every footstep that I take, but on the other, um, it's sort of inconsequential, which footstep I put down next. And I hope that some of that timelessness, um, is also infusing the work. Uh, I hope that's detectable in, in the writing. Hmm. One of my favorite dispatches of yours um, wrote about uh, sacramental time, which you just mentioned. And, and you wrote that you walk until your feet disappear, until all waypoints flatten. The sky becomes the seamless sky. The horizon is just a horizon. The ticking of your wristwatch slows plant 10 million footsteps across the earth and your heart pendulums to rest even as your shadow keeps moving. Look around. This is sacramental time. And I found this very, very beautiful, um, Paul. And and to me evoked a, a sense of a, of a blurring between the physical and the metaphysical. Um, is that how you experience it? I do. And it's no surprise that, you know, when people embark on pilgrimage, it's often on foot, right? Mm. Down through the ages. I mean, it, it's, I think there is this connection between uh, the body and the mind and landscape at this speed. I remind myself, I think it's, it's delightful that we are this wondrous walking machine. We have evolved to set foot, one foot in front of the other. We are exquisitely tuned to do this. And so when you, when you do it, even if you live in, in downtown Manhattan or in Shanghai and you are busy and distracted, walking feels good. Whenever you're stressed, what do you do? You get out of the office and you go take a walk, even around the block. If you need to talk to somebody intimately about something important, what do you say? You say, let's go take a walk. So I think that this sense of, of kind of well-being that comes with timelessness, the sense of kind of, um, of being at peace, uh, it must be very, very old. And, I, and it must be like a stylist kind of dropping into a groove on the surface of a planet mm. and making this music. And, and we are, our bodies are that stylus, and, and we're meant to move 
at this RPM that comes with, with the movement of our body. And, and it just feels natural. It just feels good. Mm. And, and it's, and it's very primal as you, as you just described and, and can evoke ancient feelings inside of us. And, and you mentioned, you know, Turkey just a minute ago, and, and there was a dispatch you wrote from there, which also struck me uh, very deeply, where you spoke about longing, and you and you said there comes an old, old longing while walking through the world. Walking, you learn each new landscape the way you might explore the face of a lover, up close by grazing your fingertips over the features without distraction with a sort of doomed attentiveness, acutely aware that each mile sliding by is gone forever, knowing it won't hold. The best walking and the best riding must happen this way. And I also really love this. You know, it's um, very touching. And I guess I wonder about this longing that has been awakened in you. <laughs> that piece... You know, it, it alludes to the acceptance of the passage of time. I think it alludes to the acceptance, ultimately, of mortality. But that passage, mm. the longing in that passage, I remember that story. I was channeling um, not just my own feelings, but, but I was walking with, with a friend through Anatolia, through Kurdistan at that time. And he was uh, ethnic Kurd. He was from that landscape uh, and had deep psychic roots in that landscape. And he was grappling with, you know, if you're familiar with the history of the Kurds in that part of the world, he was grappling with issues of home and homelessness, of being a, a minority group that had been marginalized and, and, and divided up into four modern nation states and that's in, in each nation state um, was struggling to have some sort of agency, right? Mm. Cultural agency, right? And so his longing, I felt keenly. <laughs> and I think that kind of longing can, can range from something like that. We're talking about a longing for belonging, you know, a longing to kind of, to claim wholeheartedly your, your sense of your own identity. Uh, and your and your freedom to 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 choose to do so, to the longing that comes for you know that comes with personal isolation, loneliness, um, longing for connection. Uh, walking brings this out. Um, I, I come back to this strange sort of tangency between hyper awakeness and deep inwardness. Mm. Walking just freeze this feeling up it just activates it and so uh you feel both you can feel both very happy and um kind of sadly accepting in the same moment hmm. Hmm. Uh, it seems that perhaps another effect of of life moving at a walking pace is that the points that most of us um, normally use to anchor our sense of time suddenly become irrelevant or, or less central, I would guess. And, and, and you wrote about how anniversaries, birthdays, the body signs of aging, all the usual calendars, they start to dissolve. Uh, can, can you speak to this? And, and, and also what emerges um, when these, uh, these markers, they disappear? It varies from person to person, and I'll, I'll explain sort of a really wonderful aspect of, I, I always walk with people, 
right? That's the, the premise of mm. my, my project. I'm not out here walking the earth alone. Um, as, a, as a storyteller, I think uh, even I would find that rather dull. It, it's walking <laughs> with, with local people who, who call these landscapes home. But, but personally, I think it's going to sound banal and trite, but it puts me in the moment, right? So the, it culminates in um, being in that moment between each footstep. I'm there. You know, you can never stop the movie that's in your head, but at a certain point, it, it does kind of, the volume goes down to a whisper, if not silence, and you can just be there. You can just be there. Mm. And that's that are these moments which I mentioned where the, where, the, where the globe seems to be rolling under your feet and you're standing still. Um, a meditative moment. With the people who walk with me, people I call walking partners who are co-equal storytellers in, in this project, um, who we always encourage to either write or record or draw uh, or write poems. I've walked with a, a wonderful poet here in China about their own walking experience, what I've noticed, and, and it's just, a, it, I almost, I, 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 when I start with a new person, I, I'm, I'm kind of smiling inwardly, waiting with anticipation for this sense of reward that invariably comes when somebody comes unanchored from time. Hmm. When they become aware that they have stopped thinking about uh, industrial time or, or, you know, analog time or digital time, when, when they suddenly become aware that something feels different today after walking hmm. six, seven, eight, 12, 15 days, I'm not moving through time the way I have my whole life. And in some cases, it's difficult for them to articulate it. It's, as you can tell, it's even difficult for me to articulate this state of timelessness. Um, but they like it like I do. And they comment on it after they leave the trail. We stay in touch. I try to stay in touch with my walking family. And it's, it's scores and scores of people at this point. But they have a sense of nostalgia about having moved from this kind of uh, walking time in, back into a life where the time is now metered um, outside the yeah. body, right? Often, often digitally these days. Hmm. You describe that moving on foot and in tune with the rhythms of the land around you, you start to enter, um, I guess, another trance-like state, um, what you described as a long-wave mental state in which all the elements of our modern civilization, be they cities or technology or mass media, that seem to be deeply permanent, uh, reveal themselves to be, in fact, rather fleeting within this space that you enter. Um, and that you find things begin to lose their materiality. And you wrote, uh, asking, what essence of our days will survive into the future? Uh, can you speak to this and, and also what becomes ephemeral uh, beyond, you know, cities and technology and mass media when, when you step into this long-wave mental state? It's interesting because there's a personal reaction. Your own life becomes ephemeral. And there's also a macro-systemic phase where, where virtually everything you see, including the rocks themselves, are transient. Mm. This first impression of seeing modern 21st century infrastructure uh, change in front of my eyes, I've had a couple earlier encounters with this 
kind of almost a, a daytime vision, if you will. I used to be a war correspondent, and often when I'd come back from conflict zones into a modern, normal, peaceful city, I would blink and I would see the city structure in front of me uh, destroyed. I would hmm. see the spider-webbed glass, broken glass. I would see the, the black eyebrows of ash coming out of windows that, that you see in burned buildings. And, and I would blink again, and then the cities would be restored to their peaceful uh, state. This project is quite different. Um, what I see when I, when I walk past cities or when I walk past pipelines or highways or, or mass industrial agriculture product projects is I can see it. I mentioned earlier myself turning into a ghost. I see these things that seem like they've been with us forever and will be here for long after we're gone turn into this kind of insubstantial ghost-like plasma. Mm. Um, it goes back to this notion of geological time where you enter this phase where you kind of look deeply through things and you see through time. You see, you see mountains, you see, you see sunlight, uh, you see an iron hard horizon, you see the sea. And even those things, though, have a sense of, of unreality to them, a sense of, of insubstantiality. And, you know, I don't, want, I don't want to ascribe more than I can to them. Um, but I think it just goes back to you are both disassociated, but on the other side of that disassociation, if you walk long enough, if you pay enough attention, you're ultimately connected to it, right? Mm. Um, the noise, the noise, it has meaning. The, uh, I'm sitting in a, in, a, in a small town in China right now. I can hear distant truck traffic on a highway. Um, I can hear occasional honk of a car. I'm not saying that that isn't any less real than the coastal wetlands, the ancient coastal wetlands that this town is built upon. I, I think they're both here right now under my feet. Mm. But, but if I went out today and I, I walk enough, they both might dissolve. And mm. it's not a negative feeling. Uh, again, it's, it's sort of the opposite. It comes with a sense of peace. It comes with a sense of connectedness that I'm connected to something that maybe is even older than the wetlands. Hmm. There's a lot of reference, um, maybe not directly, but um, implicitly, uh, in in your writing to deep time and and uh, you know how archaeologists and millennia will come to stumble across the evidence of our hubris and overconsumption buried in the geological strata and that there are ports and cities built of steel and concrete or belching factories that, that you've passed um, on your journey that will one day just become a layer of deep time in the earth. Yeah, this, this struck me first in Djibouti. Um, Djibouti is a, is a small African country next to the, the Gulf of Aden, and, and it has, has a very busy port, industrial port, where the lights are on 24-7. Mm and ships are being offloaded and, and, and whatnot. But it struck me, beca because I, I was interested in archaeology as a kid, and I took a few courses in archaeology um, at university, and I went out on active digs. And I remember digging through what archaeologists call lenses, uh, middens or lenses of, of human culture. And in the case where I went to, to school in Central California, um, these, were, these were like lenses of shells left by 
the Chumash people of Central California. So you would find it, if you did a cross-section, say through a trench, you'd find a lenticular shape in the dark soil of white kind of shell. Mm. And it had been compacted through centuries, right, of soil on top of it. And I just imagined Djibouti City, and by extension, all the rest of our, our stuff um, from our material culture, just crushed into, <laughs> into a lenticular layer, right? Several meters <laughs> deep, you know, glass and plastic and metal uh, and a few of our bones thrown into it, yeah. Mm. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, throughout your dispatches, um, you, you, you detail many moments of engaging on a deeper level um, with, with the living world and the more natural alive world. And uh, there was a story I was struck by of uh, walking across uh, tree root bridges in India. Um, and these bridges are hundreds of years old and often outlast the, the, the newer concrete or metal structures that might form that strata in the future. Um, and you wrote that uh, to step across these bridges formed from trees was to come into contact with a rare harmonious collaboration between the human imagination and the growing muscle of nature, which in turn allowed you to span time. And, and, and most people can't you know, visit some of these places that you've been on your journey, Paul. They can't walk across these amazing old tree bridges in India. Um, but I wonder if you could speak to how you feel the living world that anyone can have access to can can act as a kind of um, entryway into experiencing this this deep time. Yeah, absolutely, Emmanuel. Absolutely, you do not have to to uh, you know make your way to the jungles of northeastern India to experience this thing. I think it's there for you. And um, it might be a little tougher to see and experience if it's part of your daily life, whether you're living in a small town or a megalopolis uh, or anything in between, because as usual, if we stay sedentary, um, we get scales over our eyes and we, and we stop mm. realizing the wonders of the everyday world around us because they become over familiar, but walking peels those scales off and, and allows you to rediscover the extraordinariness of so-called ordinary things. And that includes a walk through your town, a stroll out into the fields or a park near your house, indeed your backyard, if you choose to go micro, right? Um, mm. And this notion of how economies that depend on nature um, also move through this very natural prism of time has struck me more and more and more, um, partly because of its rarity in a world today. So, so I've written, um, this might be a little bit of a tangent, but it's an important one for me, um, a discovery uh, of, this, of this journey, is how much of the world has been transformed by the human hand. It has a very heavy thumbprint, homo sapien thumbprint on it. Um, I think people mm. are maybe uh, misled a little bit by things like nature documentaries. They assume that there's still, you know, vast tracts of, of, of virgin wilderness um, covering large portions of the planet. I, I simply, on this walk, uh, that has been disproven to me. But still, people who live close to nature, people who, who farm, especially people who still farm in an artisanal way, you know, they might still use, you know, small motorized, you know, tractors or what have you, but not the massive scale uh, industrial farming that now feeds most of the world. These folks have, like those tree root bridges, concocted 
over generations an interconnectedness with the natural landscape that they inhabit that is extraordinarily um, clever. It's very innovative. It's the opposite of kind of being backward and dusty and, and kind of old fashioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a system of knowledge that is very rare today. I would say in, among the mass extinctions that, that, that we all are aware of and get written about, what I call the handmade world is one that's happening right now and one that doesn't get acknowledged a lot. But walking across those tree bridges in Northeast India and, and walking through the handmade world of, of rural India, Northeast India, but just the, the rural handmade world of, of India, Northern India at large, and also in Southwestern China, where everything is still sort of scaled to the human body, right? Whether it's walking trails, whether it's you know handmade homes made out of local materials, often made with tools that themselves are handmade. Um, the fact that the handwork in the fields is done by hand, none of this is easy. It's an economy that is, that is by modern definition, underdeveloped and hard. And I completely empathize and to some degree even agree with the farmers who, who would prefer a more mechanized form of farming. Um, it still, though, has this feeling of natural time and human time uh, joining hands and, and kind of clasping fingers in this kind of middle way, right? Mm-hmm. It's a very uh, amazing middle way in the sense, and, and the way that I, I wrote about it is it I felt kind of immediately at home in these landscapes where nature and humans had joined hands um, mm. across time, not just in geographies. And I'd never been to any of these places before. And I think it's because they were scaled to my body. My body felt at home. Mm. Hmm. You also have spoken about, um, you know, a collective forgetfulness of entire knowledge systems and ways of being that have preceded our moment. And uh, you wrote that anywhere you go, life ways based on an antique accommodation between the environment and the human hand are being forgotten in a vast, invisible final turning of the wheel, which um, is, you know, quite sobering. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was just explaining. And, you know, I was, I was uh, raised in a, in a semi-rural landscape in central Mexico, a village that had been on the outskirts of a big city that has now since been absorbed in the central Mexican plateau. And so I think this, this was kind of a, an awakening of even of my own awareness of something that mm. had been in my bones as a kid of, of people who still worked with nature by hand. And it is, it, it, it is a traditional system of knowledge that is vanishing. It makes me wonder, especially here in China, where when you walk through rural landscapes, it's, it's famous now, everybody knows that, you know, it, these are villages of old people, right? These are, you know, it's hard to right. see anybody who's under 50 or 60 out planting leeks and using the topography in such a way that it will trap rainwater just enough to water your leeks, but not too much to flood your leeks, right? the contouring systems that is done by hand, this, the, 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 the kind of limbic knowledge of how hydrology works at an individual farm plot level. Um, once these elders are gone, this traditional system of knowledge will be gone. And I do not begrudge these elders one nanosecond, the fact that, hey, I want a John Deere tractor. I, I completely get it, and I probably would too. But I would you know, try to go out and talk to these elders and say, 
you know, here's the John Deere, but before um, we, we fire her up, tell me how you do it by hand. Because as we enter a century of sort of newly emerging constraints, a century of limitations that we're only now kind of getting the inkling of, it's going to be a tough century ahead. It, these mm. old lifeways, this old traditional system of knowledge that has sustainability baked into it could come in handy, no pun intended, mm. when it comes to recreating handmade uh, landscapes. And one thing that you know I, I think about a lot is the relationship between you know those ancient ways of knowledge to the stories that are held within them in relationship to to the land or the places that uh, these people have lived for sometimes for millennia, um, and that when these ancient systems of knowledge go, the stories often go too, um, which is a loss often that maybe isn't given the attention it needs to. I agree. Um, th these are these are maps. These are uh, psychic maps. Uh, these are metaphysical maps of of where trees grow, where a mm. special tree grows. And once the people who inhabit that landscape go away, once they 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 pass from the stage, that cosmos disappears as well. And the tree just becomes another tree. It becomes a resource, something that a forester ticks off in, in, a, in a census, right? As opposed to a very special tree, right? That has a story wrapped around it, that might have yeah. an origin story wrapped around it. Um, so yes, absolutely. And, and, and I've seen it over and over again. Uh, even here in China, one of the most industrialized countries in the world, um, there are parts of China where people know trees. They'll say, see that tree? That's an ancestor tree. See that little mm -hmm. box at the bottom of its uh, trunk? That's a shrine. <laughs> you know, and, and who's going to maintain the shrine, you know, after grandma and grandpa pass away? Um, mm -hmm. Probably, probably not, not too many people. Hmm. Well, I wonder if um, we could end our conversation um, by you offering a practice of how to approach walking that those listening could perhaps embark on in, in their own place that might allow them to begin to see the world through the lens that you do and maybe even step into sacramental time. I think we all do it, whether to some degree wittingly, to some degree unwittingly in our lives, often, if not daily, often. I'll give you a personal example. I had to pause for a couple months in Beijing, a very big city, to do some research and to write. And so I rented a small little flat in a hutong, an alleyway in an old part of the city. Mm. And so I joined the sedentary tribe, the majoritarian <laughs> tribe, those two months. I was sitting in front of a laptop. I did what you and probably hundreds of millions of other urbanites do every day is that there was a time of the day where I just needed to take a walk and I could structure that walk to the local market. Um, it doesn't have to be far and I can slip into the rewards of using this astonishing internal metronome that's built inside of us, inside of our body that distinguishes us from almost every other animal within 500 meters, right? And so that was enough to kind of refresh my day. 
to be able to go mm-hmm. back in front of the, the work. And I think something as simple as that, and I think we all know uh, friends and colleagues who, who incorporate a little walking into their commute, right? Let's say you have, to, you have to jump on a metro, but you walk to and from the metro, or during your lunch hour, you take a spin around the park and sit in the park. Um, I think these micro migrations are just as potent and valid if we can access them. It would help if there's a little quiet that you're walking through or to, um, but, but you can access this goodness that's kind of humming in our bones, waiting to be let out. Paul, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for taking the time at the beginning of your day before you head off to your next destination. Emergence Magazine is an initiative of Calliopeia Foundation. Our original essays, in-depth interviews, films, and rich multimedia explore the threads connecting ecology, culture, and spirituality. Our theme music is composed by Logan Stanley and H. Scott Salinas. This podcast is edited by Erica Neininger and produced by Shauna Quinn and Emmanuel Vaughn Lee, with writing by Lucy Wormald. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. To subscribe to our newsletter, order our new print edition, and check out more of our stories, visit emergencemagazine.org.